We're soon going to be hearing about nominations for Sports Personality of the Year annual competition on BBC Sport. And I suspect many of us have our sporting heroes, uh, people who inspire us by their achievements in whatever game that they play or sports they compete in. Uh, to my mind, no one compares with one athlete who was born in June 1940. She was the 20th of 22 children. You feel for her mum, don't you? Her birth was premature. She weighed only four and a half pounds. And she was often really poorly in her first year, partly being due to being so tiny. And so her mother nursed her through measles, mumps, scarlet fever, chickenpox, and double pneumonia in her first year. She was from Tennessee in the southern United States, and she was, uh, she was born in the era of segregation. And so she and her mother were not permitted to be cared for in the local hospital, which was for whites only. So uh, she had to have her health care delivered elsewhere. It was then that it was discovered that her left leg, left leg sorry, and foot were becoming deformed, and she was having trouble uh, with her left leg. She was told she had polio. And the doctor said she would never walk in her life. And even though it was 50 miles away, her mother took her to a special hospital in Memphis twice a week for two years, traveling on a bus until she was able to walk with the aid of a metal leg brace and an orthopedic shoe. Her name was Wilma, and she was blessed with parents who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When she was eight, she watched her older sister Yolanda play basketball. And uh, though her legs were in braces, she said to her mum, you know, mama, one day I want to do that. And she said to her, honey, if you believe, you will. And she said, I believe, mama. On her 12th birthday, Wilma said to her parents, mama, daddy, I have a surprise for you. And she slowly took this metal caliper off her left leg and she walked unaided for the first time in her life. Soon after that, when the basketball club selected youngsters for the new season, Yolanda was picked for the team, but Wilma was not. And she was absolutely heartbroken, crestfallen. But her dad, who also believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, refused to accept it. And he looked the coach in the eye, and he said, you take one of my daughters, you take both of them. I'm not leaving until you take Wilma as well as Yolanda. So the coach took them both on his team, but at first he kept Wilma on the bench, and she was the only member of the squad to suffer the indignity of not having a number on her vest. Well, Wilma kept praying, she kept believing, and finally, she got a few games in the basketball team. And it was then, running around on that court, that she was spotted by a man named Ed Temple. And Ed Temple coached the women's track team at Tennessee State University. And his trained eye, when he looked at her body move across that court, he saw immediately that Wilma was not built for basketball. She was built for track athletics running. And so he invited her to a summer sports camp. 
and Wilma rapidly got better and better. And she even started to win a few races. There she is, breaking the tape. And uh, she won some races, first of all in her state and then nationally. And she even went on to compete in the Olympic Games in Melbourne in 1956 at the tender age of 16, where she won a bronze medal in the time 400 relay. Honey, if you believe, you will. I believe, Mama. Four years later, 1960, Wilma Rudolph went to the Olympic Games. This time it was in Rome. She won the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the 4 by 400 meters relay, becoming the first woman American athlete to come to win three Olympic gold medals, breaking three world records as she did so. Isn't that amazing? And when she returned from Rome, she was honored with a ticker tape reception and a dinner with President Kennedy. But back in her hometown, Clarksville, Tennessee, they planned two heroes' welcomes, welcome parties, one for whites, one for blacks. And Wilma said, oh no, you organize one event for everyone or I am not attending. And they backed down. And her victory reception was the first fully integrated municipal event in her town's history. Never mind sports personality of the year, she is the sports personality of all time in my life. And I tell her beautiful story this morning to you because I believe Wilma Rudolph is the perfect illustration, the perfect modern example of someone who had a bad start in life through no fault of her own. But by the grace of God, she ended well. She finished well. And this is what I want to talk about this morning to you from the last verses of Colossians uh, as we bring to an end this series in Colossians today. So basically I'm preaching on the same chapter that was commented on uh, last week, but I'm taking a different angle. And I felt God gave me a word as we planned this series way back in the, the summer, I think it was, or even the spring. I felt God gave me a word from this chapter Four kings today. So let's read what it says. We're reading chapter four from verse seven. Pray for me. I've got lots of weird names to pronounce here. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. This is Paul speaking. Tychicus, he's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow, my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. 
Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, at first sight, this is just a, a, a list of mostly minor Bible characters and their names. Most of us, I suspect, know a little bit about Mark and Luke and Barnabas and perhaps maybe Onesimus, who is the converted runaway slave we read about in the letter to Philemon. And of course, Paul himself is one of the top three or even top two most prominent people in the New Testament. I'm sure we all know who he is. But who on earth are Tychicus, Aristarchus, Justus, Epaphras, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus? And yet, look at the words describe, used to describe what these mostly bit-part people do. They are being co-workers, they are telling good news, they're encouraging hearts, they're wrestling in prayer, they're comforting others, they're opening up their homes, they're working hard, they're completing tasks, and they're getting the job done. That's what it says about them. And this is a snapshot of a community in which different people with each with a unique contribution, each with their own mix of spiritual gifts are bringing uh, their contribution, they're coming and going, and they're pulling in the same direction to advance the kingdom of God. That's what I want kings to be, don't you? A community like that. But I want to single out just two names of these names from the 12 I mentioned before, because... I feel God wants to speak into our situation here at King's through these two guys. And maybe God wants to speak to you personally as an individual this morning through their lives as well. Right, the first character I want us to look at this morning is Mark. Mark, sometimes called John Mark. Now Mark, like Wilma Rudolph, started badly, but he finished well. <clears throat> And we know a little bit about Mark, hardly anything, if anything, from the Gospel of Mark, but we know a lot about him from the book of Acts. We know he was Barnabas's cousin. Paul mentions that here. Barnabas was known as a great encourager, you might remember, and he accompanied Paul on his first missionary tour. And he said to Paul, do you know what? I think my cousin, Mark, would be really good uh, to come on our team as well. He could, be a, he could work with us. Let's take him with us on this trip. And Paul said, okay, that sounds a good idea. So Paul agreed, and off they went. 
But not long after they started, Mark turned back. Before the going got really tough, he was out of there. He was out. He let the team down. We're not told why. Some speculate maybe he just got travel sick from traveling on the Mediterranean Sea or homesick. Maybe it was Paul's demanding personality and uh, abrasive leadership style that he just couldn't live with. Others wonder if perhaps as a Jew, he was just really uncomfortable with the gospel going to Gentiles and seeing Gentiles brought into the people of God. He just couldn't get his mind around it. It could have been any of these things or all of them or indeed none of them. It could be another reason. All we know is that Mark said, I'm out. And Paul got really annoyed about it. That's what we know from Acts. He felt really let down by Mark, and he refused point blank to ever take him on his team again, or certainly on the subsequent trip, the one after that. He said, no, Mark was a quitter. Mark has blown it. There's this huge blot now on Mark's uh, spiritual CV. For Paul, Mark is damaged goods, and he's off Paul's team, and he's not having him back. Now, some of you might wonder if you have sometime in the past, maybe even recently, made such a huge mistake in your life. It might have been a long way back. You've made such a big mistake that it's put an end to your usefulness for God. You might have let someone down. You might have let them down badly. You might have fallen morally. You might have made a catastrophic error of judgment or said something that really was awful. You might carry a sense of failure and regret all the way through your Christian life. You might think, God will never use me again after what happened way back when. And if that is you this morning, you need to think again. You need to renew your mind. I'm not saying that mistakes or sins in the past past do not carry consequences because they do. But listen, these things do not define you. They must not define you. They are not a life sentence for you. And with God, as long as you're still breathing, there's always, always another chance. God is good. The leader of uh, Passion Church in Atlanta, Georgia, a guy called Louis Giglio, some of you will have heard him. He says this, if you're thinking that you don't deserve a second chance from God, it's important to remember that you didn't deserve the first one either. (laughs) Karma is an idea from other religions. We don't believe in karma. We believe in grace, the grace of God. Now, 15 years after this painful bust up, Paul says here in verse 10, if Mark comes to you, oh, Mark, welcome him. He doesn't say avoid him. He'll always let you down. He let me down once. He says, welcome him. And tellingly, in verse 11, he calls Mark a co-worker. Not a former co-worker, a co-worker for the kingdom of God. So he must by this time have been restored to Paul's apostolic team. And he even says that Mark has proved himself. He's proved himself. He was a comfort to Paul, he says, in his imprisonment. 
And in his very last letter that he wrote, 2 Timothy, written shortly before his death, we think, Paul says this, get Mark, get Mark, bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And afterwards, piecing together all the evidence that uh, we have from the New Testament and from other documents from the time, it seems that Mark later teamed up with Peter in Rome when Peter was there. And there he wrote Mark's gospel based, we think, on Peter's recollections and preaching, talking about the adventures he had with Jesus when uh, he was walking around with him. See, by the grace of God, Mark turned it all around. Unpromising beginnings, Mark. Failure. Disappointment. Rejection. Exclusion. But that did not define him for the rest of his life, and he finished well. He finished well. When I was at school, I was uh, always very average academically, and I was invariably actually bottom of the class in maths. I'm still rubbish at sums now, but I was a creditably good cross-country runner. In fact, I used to run for my school in Essex County races. I was no Wilma Rudolph, let's put it that way, but I did okay. And uh, I loved middle distance running, loved it. Uh, And the one race I remember more than any other was a 1,500 metres, four times around the track, 30 boys. Uh, running around this stadium-sized running track. And the race started, and I was uh, tucked in with a group of about six lads, um, setting a, a decent but comfortable pace. And then after maybe about a lap and a half, out of nowhere, this skinny kid with wispy blonde hair, John Gatrell, he kicked hard, and he opened up this amazing lead. Uh, and he accelerated away from the pack. And when the bell rang to signal the start of the last lap, he was already pretty well halfway around the track ahead of us and closing in on victory. But you know, pace setters often burn out. And I said to myself, John Lambert, if you make a move now and you give it all you've got, you might just catch him. And you could see him at maybe 100 meters back, He was beginning to struggle. His legs were just full of lactic acid. He was spent. He was done. And I started to kick into a really good stride, and the gap closed, and it closed, and it closed. He was so far ahead, but I was traveling so much faster. And I could see, judging the distance and the relative paces, it was going to be really close. I turned into the last bend. I began to sprint. John Gatchel, by this time, was virtually at walking pace. He was gasping for breath, and I pipped him on the line, winning by a fraction of a second. Thank you, everybody. (laughs) I'll never forget that day. Sports personality of the year, eh? (laughs) But I learned that day that no matter how badly or how well you start, the only thing that actually counts is how you finish. Which brings me to the second character we're going to zoom in on in this list of names, and his name is Demas, and he's in verse 14. Demas is the opposite to Mark, because Demas began really well. 
Here we find him, verse 14. He's sending his greetings along with Luke, mentioned in the same breath as Luke. This is the company he keeps, the great gospel writer and the writer of Acts, Luke. Solid, dependable, traveling companion. And Demas and Luke are together. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul describes Demas as a fellow worker. He's on Paul's team. This is a good guy. Paul doesn't consider Demas to be a faceless lackey. He's part of his team. He's valuable. He's not a minion just running around doing unglamorous things for the great Paul. He's actually on his team. And Demas is therefore in his life. Just imagine this. He is seeing hundreds of people converted to Christ. He's seeing churches planted all over the Mediterranean basin. He's seeing signs and wonders. His band of evangelists and church planters are talk of every town they go to. What a great life Demas lived. And working with this brilliant and passionate guy, Paul, who's driven out demons. This guy, Paul, is raised the dead. He's broken out of jails in his life. He speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians, Paul's does. And that's his mate. That's his guy, his, the guy he's with. And Demas, is get, he gets that gig. He's a trusted, valuable team member of the great apostle Paul. But in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, this is written maybe a decade later after Colossians. We hear about Demas again. And tragically, we hear about a guy who began so well, but finished really badly. Demas, writes Paul, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Why did Demas's passionate heart for God cool down and grow cold? It says because he loved this world. He loved that. Was he was he discouraged by all the hardship and rejection? Was he maybe embarrassed by Paul's chains? What was it about Thessalonica that drew him? Was there a woman there? Was it all, all the creature comforts of a nice town like Thessalonica? Whatever it was, what we know is that Demas walks away. And he throws in the towel and he leaves the purposes of God for his life behind. And he is never heard of again in the New Testament. And Jesus warned us that sometimes this would happen in his parable of the sower. Jesus talked about seed being scattered on different soils and he said, one seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. And then he explains this, the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. In John Piper's podcast, 
asked Pastor John recently, he, he said that not only Jesus, but also Paul, Peter, and the writer to the Hebrews also describe people who make a seemingly good start in the Christian life, only then to tragically reject what they once claimed to believe. And what is striking about all these descriptions of shipwrecking the faith in the New Testament, he said, is that the rocks on which faith shatters are not ever intellectual problems with Christianity. It's not problems like um, of reason, like the historical truthfulness of the Bible, or faith versus science, or the problem of suffering. In every case, he said, when the Bible talks about shipwrecking the faith, walking away is because of the heart's preference for sin. Isn't that interesting? Not, incidentally, that God ever loses any of his children, any of his chosen ones. In fact, Romans 8.30 says this, those whom God predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not one of those who God makes a son or a daughter will ever be lost. That is clear from the New Testament. And you can have absolute assurance today of your salvation as long as you are walking with the Lord today. And I don't want to hear about an experience that maybe you had 10, 20, or 30 years ago. However amazing it may have been, is it still real now? Is your faith alive now? If your testimony about being saved is sure, your faith will still be alive today. But people can and sadly do walk away from professing faith. And like Demas, you can make a seemingly good start in the Christian life and then prefer the world to treasuring Christ and lose everything, everything. Mark started badly but finished well. And as a result, we've got Mark's gospel. Uh, in this town, there's a St. Mark's church. There's a St. Mark's square and cathedral in Venice. We all know people called Mark, named after this man. That's his legacy, if you like. Demas started well, but finished badly. And consequently, nobody here knows anybody called Demas. There's no St. Demas's church in Darlington or anywhere else. There's no St. Demas cathedral. There's no St. Demas anything. His history is forgotten. You never hear anything about this man again. There's no enduring legacy. He's just a tragic footnote in the pages of our Bibles in a list of names that we're all tempted to skim over when we read it. That's Demas. Some of us here this morning... Maybe we don't know the Lord yet. Maybe we're just looking at the moment. Is today the day that you decide to give your heart to Christ? What better day can there be than today? If you hear the Lord's voice today, when you respond today, you might think, well, what will my friends think? What will my family think? What will this cost me if I became a Christian? 
The writer C.S. Lewis puts it this way, there are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Don't put it off any longer. You feel your heart's being tugged today. Come to Christ today. Give your heart to him today. Put your faith in him today. Some of us have known the Lord only a short time. Being Christians a relatively short time, I want to just encourage you, don't be like Demas. Stay on track. Keep the faith. Don't let your heart grow cold. Don't prefer the world and its glitzy lights to the treasure of Christ, which is eternal. Some of us, I would say probably most of us, started walking with the Lord a long time ago now. And I want to say, have you drifted lately? Have you been drifting? Do you need, like Mark had to do, to to come right back into the heart of God's purposes for you? Is that where you are today? Does there need to be a reset, uh, a recalibration of your journey with the Lord? If that's the case, I want to encourage you again. Do it today. Don't put it off. Meet with the Lord now. Say, Lord, I've been drifting. I've been going all over the place. I want to come right back to you today. Don't let my heart grow cold, Lord. Light the fire again in me. Shall we stand to pray? So if the musicians want to head back, that'll be great. And um, we'll play some just gentle music as we as we respond to God. Quiet. We want to hear God's voice and be able to respond to Him. We felt it would be good not to have the three-minute break earlier because we wanted to really clear the decks to have plenty of opportunity to respond to the Lord and what He's saying to us this morning.